0: This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, feel free to support our show by becoming a patron for as little as one pound per month. By subscribing to our show, you get early access to ad-free and bonus episodes, patron-only content, workshops, panels, and much more. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash coffeeandcocktailspodcast and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the 33rd episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Anne Wand. This month for our Controversies and Contraband series, we have the pleasure of talking with Associate Professor of Maritime and Naval History at the University of Plymouth, Dr. Elaine Murphy, who will be entertaining our ears on the fantastical and fascinating world of female pirates. Thank you for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. Or should I maybe say
0: our pleasure to be here? Uh, as per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you're having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Elaine, would you like to
1: start? Uh, well, as you can possibly hear from my accent, I'm Irish, so I'm having a cup of tea. I don't drink coffee at all. It's all always tea. And this is about my 10th cup today. So,
0: Oh, Monday, Monday, Monday. Always never, never fails to uh, disappoint, I should say. Yeah, um, I got to say, uh, I know I said this too before we uh, hit the record button. I had so much fun reading about this topic. It started off with, you know, oh, yeah, I'll read this book by so-and-so and and I'll look at this article. And then, you know, six o'clock at night, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just read one more. Maybe I'll just read just a tiny bit more. Hmm.
1: I think I have one of the coolest jobs in history. I get to talk about pirate history and it's something here in Plymouth, which is a city with a lot of pirate and privateering associations that goes down really well. So it's um, something that's really fun to do for me as a historian.
0: I bet I can't. I can't wait to dive into this. I've been really looking forward to this for weeks. Um, so maybe we should start off with, I guess, sort of the biggest question because in this series normally uh, we talked about we con- uh, controversies, but not the contraband element. I just felt <laughs> like when I was putting this together, I was like, we need, we need thieves, <laughs> we need people who steal stuff, contraband, and I kept thinking, I was racking my brain. I was like, well, what kind of thieves are there out there? And I was like, pirates. Yeah. (laughs) So when I found your details, I just got very excited and thought I have to write you immediately and you have not disappointed. Let's put it that way. Um, But yeah. So first question, what got you interested in the history of female piracy?
1: Well, I actually wasn't really interested in female pirates or indeed pirates at home more generally. And then I started my PhD. I was really interested in the period of the British Civil Wars, the 1640s. -hmm. And my master's had been about warfare on land, about cavalry charges and all that. And I was looking for something new. And my PhD supervisor in Dublin kind of recommended I look at maritime aspects of the war. And from that, I ended up looking at... um, privateers, um, private men of war, or people who had commissions to go to sea and of course piracy is often in the eye of the beholder so mm-hmm. the Irish confederate private men of war, if you were a parliamentarian, one of Cromwell's naval officers, you would have considered them pirates and from there I kind of got into piracy and quite got interested in it and then I worked some more it and then I got a job here in Plymouth and teaching a course on piracy and that kind of expanded into a broader interest in women in the sea and so it's kind of been a long term station kind of going through my interests in it so and it, it's often been quite focused also by my teaching and my students who are um, absolutely thrilled by the prospect of studying piracy.
0: I mean who wouldn't I mean that's just so cool. Well I so it's interesting So you're mentioning this idea of privateer versus pirate before we get into that question could you tell us a little bit about what initially led people to become pirates because we will be talking about a specific era in history but before that you know, why would people become pirates in the first place?
1: Well, I think that's a fascinating question. And it's one that I think enthralls most people because we think about pirates as very jolly, very adventurous. But actually, the real world reality, most people became pirates because of economic necessity. It was poverty and unemployment that drove Sailors, professional seamen who'd worked at sea for years into piracy. So often at the end of a war, they lots of sailors had been employed, but there was a massive economic downturn and they found themselves unemployed, very little opportunities. Merchant shipping was in decline. So you see, really, at the end of most kind of wars in the kind of 16th, 17th, 18th century, you see this economic downturn. So at the end of the Elizabethan Wars with Spain in 1604, 1605, the end of the War of Spanish Succession, and essentially you have unemployment. Um, So some men are forced essentially into piracy because there's nothing else. So some of your listeners and you might be familiar with Henry Morgan, the buccaneer. Oh, can you tell us about him? Well, he was uh he goes to uh, the West Indies as an indentured servant, and when his kind of seven years indentures up, he discovers there's no employment in the islands, and so um, what one of the sources describes him as, he becomes a pirate because he was destitute of employment. There was just no work. So this is quite common. The other big driver for men becoming pirates is because um, merchant sailors are often treated very badly, and so are naval sailors at times. So their pay is very low, the food is bad, the captains will cheat them, they're treated harshly. So when they get an opportunity to join a pirate ship, a lot of sailors will take it, because there's this idea among pirate ships of kind of equality and democracy. So equality of food, everybody gets the same food, equal shares, as much you can eat and drink which is really fun and then also that every man has a say in what the pirate ship does so if you're on a naval ship or a merchant ship the captain makes the decisions and you do as you're told Mm. whereas on a pirate ship everybody will get together you'll still have a captain who'll still make the, will be in charge of the voyage but all the men will get together and decide what they're going to do and this is the idea you have of pirate articles where there's kind of the rules and everybody's going to be treated fairly and equally. So you get an equal share of the prizes, an equal share of food and drink. And so this kind of idea of equality, democracy, fraternity is almost there. Mm-hmm. Among the pirates. Um, so I think very famously you have Bartholomew Roberts and he sums up some of these ideas and he talks about how in an honest service there's thin commons. So if you're in the merchant service, there's bad food, low wages, and hard labour. But he, he flips it and he kind of says, well, in, in this society, in pirate society, there's plenty and safety, liberty and ease, liberty and power. So, you know, pirates can eat as much as they want, they have freedom, they have their ease. But, and this is the beautiful quote from Roberts, he kind of uh, qualifies it all but he says but a merry life and a short one shall be my motto so yes the pirate life is better and more attractive but they do inherently know you're not going to be long lived you're not going to retire wealthy as a pirate
0: when well, he died about two years later didn't he yes he does so it's like well he wasn't wrong was he yeah. um the, yeah, uh,
1: I, yeah go on Well, there's obviously some men will join for adventure. They'll see an opportunity, they're bored. But I think a group of men who are often forgotten about is um, people who are compelled to become pirates, forced pirates, if you come across that term. I
0: did in the reading, yeah.
1: yeah, And this is where uh, a pirate ship captures a merchant ship. And the pirate ship is short of crewmen. And it offers the men a chance to join the pirate crew. Now, some of them will volunteer, but some of the men will be compelled. They'll be forced. And often they're forced at gunpoint to sign the pirate articles and then what the pirate will usually do is he'll release the captain and he'll give the captain a list of the names and he'll say right well, when you get ashore tell the authorities these men were forced and so in newspapers at the time in ports like Boston or that they'll print lists of men who were forced so that if they're captured by the navy those men won't be subject to execution.
0: Yeah, because there was quite a few instances where where um men were a lot of instances it seems where men were were caught by the, the naval army, mm-hmm. and then they just said, well, they put a gun to my head and they made me do it, and then they have to look into whether, like you said, you're on the list or are you lying or are you just looking for an excuse.
1: Well, you see that at trial. So there's um, the trial of Steed Bonnet, who's known as Major Steve Bonnet, the gentleman pirate. And a number of his crew members claim this. They say, no, no, you know, Captain Bonnet, you forced me, I didn't want to. And at the trial, the thing the judge is most interested in is, well, did they take a share of the prizes? Were they active pirates? And you might say, well, they had no choice but to be active, but if you were forced, you wouldn't take a share of the loot. And this was often the criteria. And so at, at times the, the, the trial is actually quite funny to read because, you know, you can see this, and, and, you know, and so some of the men are giving very dubious, spurious exp- excuses and the judge kind of says, and yet you claim you were forced, you know. Yeah. So, of course, so this is why the captain if, of the merchant ship will go ashore and he'll print the names of his men who, who were compelled, who were forced and those men will then be released if they're captured. But a lot of men, of course, because you're on trial for your life as a pirate, will try and claim this too.
0: Well, and we'll talk uh, probably a bit more about, about trials as well. Um, but you mentioned the word privateer. Could you mm-hmm. tell us the difference between a privateer and a pirate? Yeah.
1: Well, I think a pirate is a pretty straight up. It's somebody who robs at sea, who has no legal um, authority to do so. So uh, they're often described in the literature of the time as the enemy of all mankind, whereas a privateer is somebody who has a government commission called a letter of mark or a letter of reprisal. And during a time of war, they're allowed to attack enemy shipping. Now, the the term privateer is first used in the mid 17th century, but it's often used, applied backwards. So we talk about Elizabethan privateers. More properly, you should probably call them private men of war. But, you Weren't know,
0: they also sea dogs under Queen Elizabeth?
1: Yeah, the sea dogs is another kind of popular term for these men. So they have this. So essentially, what you have is somebody who has a commission in a time of war, uh, a letter of Mark as a privateer, somebody who doesn't as a pirate. The issue is, and this is what really got me into this, is that the lines are blurred mm. because... If you are the Spanish, you are, of course, going to think Francis Drake is a pirate. But if you're English, you're going to think he's acting perfectly, legitimately. And you get this in the 1640s during the Civil Wars or during the Glorious Revolution of the 1680s and 1690s, which is quite interesting because, of course, King James II, who's fled to France, issues letters of marque to his supporters. But when those men are captured by the new Williamite government, they are tried and executed as pirates because, the way I might say, James has no authority to issue letters of marque. He's not a legitimate ruler. Ooh. So, there's these kind of nuances. So, I think um, I think it's the historian Miles Ogborn has described as piracy is in the eye of the beholder. And I think that's very appropriate. That really neatly sums up the difference between a, a pirate and a privateer. Who you are determines what you think they are.
0: Yeah. So, that kind of leads us into our next question where. We talk a little bit about uh, royal governments. Um, Again, you talk about this blurred line between privateers and pirates. But um, what would be interesting to talk about is, you know, did did royals or officials ever hire privates, maybe under the name of privateers, who knows, Mm -hmm. to do particular work on behalf of the government?
1: Uh, they did both pirates and privateers at times. So you've got somebody like Queen Elizabeth, of course, is investing in privateering voyages. So things like Drake's circumnavigation and others. So Elizabeth is granting authority, granting permission. But a lot of this is done in the quiet because she wants plausible deniability. But she takes a huge share of the loot. When Sir Francis Drake comes back, you know, she takes the biggest share of the booty. So the Queen's getting rich off this. But it continues. So um, King James the First hates pirates. And so and witches. Well, and witches, yes, which <laughs> well, yeah, James doesn't like lots of people. But in particular, he doesn't have a witchcraft problem in the southwest. He's a piracy problem. And mm. one of the ways he deals with that is he eventually he wants to execute all the pirates, but that's not very feasible so he grants pardons to some of them and some of these men later go on to work for him in his navy and that so but you have um henry morgan's a great example he's a buccaneer obviously he's been unemployed so he becomes a pirate and eventually he's arrested for this and he's sent to london he's imprisoned in the tower then he's released by charles ii he's pardoned and he's knighted he becomes sir henry morgan and he's sent back to the caribbean as governor of jamaica And then, of course, he's acting with all his friends to, you know, act against the government and that. So you've got kind of lots of dubious dealings there. And it's quite common for the government, especially to offer pardons to pirates and to employ some former pirates as pirate hunters to go out and hunt down their former friends. So the idea of set a thief to catch a thief.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because they would know... They would know probably better than anybody else. They, they, they've they been there. They've done it. They know the haunts. They know the places they would go.
1: Yeah, and they have this um, government part. And so, of course, this is a way out for themselves where they can, in an ideal world, keep their stolen loot and then go legitimate. So you've got um, a well-known pirate, Benjamin Hornigold, who is probably Edward Teach, Blackbeard's mentor and he takes a pardon from uh, the new governor of the Bahamas, Woods Rogers, who sent out with pardons. But it's more than that. He then goes out hunting down and he brings in lots of his former friends who are, of course, then executed. Because if you refuse a pardon or if you take a pardon and then go back to pirating, well, then, of course, you're going to be executed when you're caught. So th- these kind of pardons do offer a way for certain pirates to kind of retire wow. and get out of the game and be legitimized.
0: Hmm. I mean, one thing I thought was really interesting as well, I mean, it kind of doesn't quite tie into what they're saying, but a bit. Um, it, this idea of, you know, who becomes pirates and then who leaves piracy, but for what reason. And um, I can't remember what article it was, but it will be in the show notes in, in terms of the readings that we're, we've, we will be talking about, or at least covering. Is that Puritans, sometimes Puritans in the New World. Became pirates. And I was like, whoa, 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 time out. I'm thinking of the Scarlet Letter. What's happening? And then in Boston, they're like, yeah, sign me up. Sounds like a great gig. I'll do it. I need the money.
1: Everybody's at it in Boston. Of course, this is one of Cotton Mather's great problems where he's condemning pirates and things like that and preaching sermons against them. Wasn't um,
0: Cotton Mather involved in the Salem witch trials hmm. as well? Yes, yeah, so
1: you know, uh, if you read some of his literature against pirates, it's all very kind of, uh, you know, their, their, their first sin is, of course, you know, why they became a pirate is they, you know, they didn't attend church on Sabbath, and then they're running after lewd women and drinking and all of these things. But it's just, um, I think what you have is really a lot of very um, weak central authority. So you can almost watch piracy moving. So under James I, there's weak central. The central government doesn't have great power in the southwest or monster in Ireland. So you have a lot of piracy in this region. Then you're seeing, as we move through the 17th century, weaker colonial governors in places like Boston and New York. And so these areas are struggling economically. And so a lot of people are just getting involved, especially as while we might call it pirating, they might see it as well making war on the Spanish. Ah, course of course, the
0: Spanish Civil War. How convenient. The timing is quite, perfect.
1: Yeah, it's kind of this kind of opportunity. I mean, most of it is pure unadulterated piracy. There's no point dressing it up. But then as the kind of colonial governments get stronger, piracy gets kind of pushed further to the periphery. But it, it always pops up and you even see it today. Um, you know, piracy pops up when there's weak local governments, mm. internal struggles. So think about Somalia, think about recent piracy in Venezuela. So it it is a continuing trend.
0: Gosh, that is really, really interesting. Well, um, in the sort of work that you do and a lot of the readings that I did for the show, um, there was this talk about the golden age of piracy. Could you tell us when this was relatively and why it's called this?
1: Well, I think the golden age is a term used of piracy. It's a term used by historians, and it's got a lot of popular currency. And It explains a kind of key period when there is a huge amount of pirate activity. Now, But personally, I'm not terribly gone on the term golden age because it implies certain niceness that's not there. We talk about Hollywood cachet, right? Yeah. And we think of the golden age of Elizabeth I and that. And so, you know, and so it's not, you know, the pirates are bad men. These are not nice people. They are murderers. They're vicious robbers. But um, historians differ on how you should date the Golden Age. Now, the broadest possible dating is generally taking it from about 1660, so the kind of restoration of Charles II, through to around 1730. And most historians will say there's three phases in that. So the first phase is the kind of 1660s to 1680s, and this is the kind of buccaneering phase, with the likes of Sir Henry Morgan in the Caribbean, would probably be one of the best-known ones and the book Buccaneers of America. And what's a
0: buccaneer? That was a term I couldn't quite get a a good definition for.
1: Well, uh, originally, I think the term starts off as a a kind of corruption of a French word to smoke and uh, to smoke meat Bucan. What happens is you have a lot of these kind of men who start off in the West Indies and that is indentured servants, but there's no work like for Henry Morgan when they finish their apprenticeships. And so a lot of them just take to raiding at sea and robbing and they become more organised. You've got a lot of French Huguenots involved in this as well as Englishmen, uh, Irishmen who are displaced post the civil war period and they get together and then they come under some good leaders like morgan who lead raids against the spanish so morgan attacks portobello and that but i mean the classic problem of a pirate is finding a ship at sea to rob is difficult attacking a spanish town is easy because you know where the town is
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you,
1: you know you're guaranteed to get wealth in a town you might attack a ship and it might just be carrying 10 barrels of fish
0: Oh, wouldn't that be such a letdown? Because there is quite a bit of gambling that goes in, into piracy, isn't it? You go in for the money, just like you go in for the casino for the money. But that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to, you might just get some fish. Yeah. And then that's the end of it.
1: And that, So that's why a lot of the Buccaneers, prefer, they prefer to attack towns. Then you've got the kind of next phase is kind of the 1690s, the kind of long distance piracy. So this is piracy kind of going from the American seaboard, but going into the Indian Ocean. So people like William Kidd, people like Henry Avery, who's a local boy to Plymouth, based out of Madagascar. So attacking Mughal ships going for great treasure fleets, and then often bringing the wealth back to the Caribbean or pirate towns like Boston and New York, where you can sell it off, of course, then the government will clamp down on this. Wow. Wow. Um, And what, yeah,
0: in the third age?
1: Well, the third phase, and this is the one a number of historians consider the pure phase. So if you talk to some historians about the golden age of piracy, they'll say the other two aren't really the golden age. It's only this last phase. And this is really the period from about 1716 through to seventeen late 1720, 1730, kind of after the war of Spanish succession ends in 1714, you have mass maritime unemployment, a lot of sailors find themselves out of work, and there's a huge upsurge of piracy. And again, this is a along the um, Anglo-American seaboard, so places like South Carolina, the Caribbean, so going across to Africa. Blackbeard,
0: so would that be the Blackbeard, yeah, yeah,
1: Edward Teach North by Hollywood Roberts and Bonnie Mary Reid. So when you think of the big famous pirates, most of them are in this particular phase. So you've got maybe up to 5,000 men serving on pirate ships in excess of 500, give or take, pirate executions. So most people, and um, when you see piracy depicted on film, it's generally this period.
0: Wow. Yeah, because I keep thinking about, you know, you talk about the, the pirate ag- agreements or uh, rules. Mm-hmm. And I know if it was at uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, they talked about like the code. The code, the code. yes. And I'm yeah. guessing that that's in reference... To so this potentially or is it different? Yeah,
1: it's the pirate articles and pirates in this phase um, are known to issue articles so every man will sign them. Now Pirate articles are actually a standard maritime way of doing business. When a sailor signs onto a ship, he always signs the articles or the articles of war in a naval ship, the rules of how the voyage runs. So this is just a common way of doing maritime business. Um, you know, we only have these articles surviving from some questionable sources. So how true they are, you always have to be a bit sceptical about them. But this is you know, the, the period where a number of them survive, and. They're good fun to read, they're interesting because they promise equality, you know, that pirates must not fight among themselves, all the different rules about how the voyage can be run. And, of course, the the classic joke from, you know, the the pirates of the Caribbean, it's more a set of guidelines. Yeah, Yeah, I I do remember that.
0: (laughs) Did you ever watch that movie and go, not bad? Not
1: bad. Uh, Yeah, I mean, if you take out the superstitious stuff and that, there's there's bits that are good fun. um, But there's, um, you know, some interesting accuracy bits in it. But it's also, I mean, I think um, the Pirates of the Caribbean, obviously, it... I'm not going to rip up. it utilizes a lot of other pirate tropes from other earlier movies. So movies, the swashbucklers from the 50s and the 30s, 40s. So you see a lot of these ideas in Pirates of the Caribbean as well. So it's at times, it's pulling from a lot of different places.
0: Well, you know what I noticed, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as well later on, um, the pirate swagger. I didn't realize. I thought that was just Johnny Depp doing his thing, and then it come to find that you could you could figure them out in a lineup because they had an actual swagger. And I thought, is that the sea legs? They have land legs. Is that is that why
1: they walk <laughs> that way? Yeah, some of it's sea legs, you know, but I suppose any sailor would have that. But I think it's also, you know, these are guys in an area, they're lawless. That idea that Bartholomew Roberts has a short and a merry life. They know, you know, this isn't going to last. But we sometimes forget that sailors in this period often swap between different careers. Some of them will go to sea in the Navy, on a privateer, in a merchant ship, on a fishing ship, and might also spend time on a pirate ship without necessarily getting caught and um, so it is just a kind of a world that these men lived in this seafaring world this maritime world that they knew and understood and they had their own private you know private language private swagger ways of behaving
0: gosh and and then it i mean it, not to go down a rabbit hole but the idea of trust you know mm. that you could just wear all these different hats and have all these different identities and if you if you got away with
1: it nobody needed to know or only the right people needed to know yeah. and that's where a lot of pirates probably just vanished back into the ether we know the captains and the, the famous men, but the, some of the ordinary crew men probably never exist in our world because they might have signed onto the ship for a few months, taken a pardon. Maybe a different name, a, potentially? Different names. They might have gone on a merchant voyage and crossed the Atlantic. and then you know, So th- th- this is a very mobile world and these are young men. So it, it's not beyond the realms of pe- possibility that somebody could have served with a pirate like Blackbeard, went on shore, joined a merchant voyage back to England, then joined the Navy. So, you know, um, it's a complex world and we see that when the men become pirates themselves. A number of them have often been on merchant ships um, or have been in junior officer roles on ships. So we see that with somebody like Bartholomew Roberts with Henry Avery where they've had, you know, positions in the Navy and considerable experience before they come to piracy and they then just decide they like piracy.
0: You know, my mind just sits there and it's like a little bit blown. (laughs) (laughs) it's like wow what a life to live um and speaking of so you talked about how you know men can kind of disappear into the ether but then there is this tiny teeny tiny percentage of women uh what less than one percent that somehow worked their way into the pirating industry but before we talk about you know the external roles in the piracy pirating industry, I'm talking about they were actual pirate pirates of which three of the main ones we're going to talk about today are Mary Reed, Anne Bonnie, and Grace O'Malley. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those three and then what Grace O'Malley, what special relationship Grace O'Malley had with Queen Elizabeth I. Well, I
1: think at... I- Mary Read and Anne Bonny are probably the most famous, and they're associated with the Golden Age of piracy. And we know about them from some very limited sources, so we have a huge problem about what we know about Captain Bonny Johnson.
0: And right? Didn't he write a book about them?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's Charles Johnson's General History of the Pirates. The problem okay. is. Johnson's history of the pirates is heavily fictionalized. We don't know who Johnson was. Now, some people say it was Daniel Defoe. Other well, people say it was multiple hack writers employed to write the cases up. But we know if you look at the different editions of Johnson that Bonnie and Reed become more popular as they go along, so they add pictures of them. And if you look at the first edition, they're kind of mentioned on the front, but by the second and third edition, their names are the big highlights on the volume.
0: One in the Dutch edition, they try to just get their get their boobs out. And I was like, whoa, oh, yeah, Nobody'd be shooting. No, 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 no. Well, but it's breasts. that whole yeah. sexualized aspect, isn't yeah. it?
1: And that's... So what we know about them is mainly from Johnson and their trial records. So a lot of the background stories, they... I find them hard to believe. They just—they stretch credulity a lot in terms of all of these coincidences just magically happen.
0: Could we talk a little bit about it? Because it is—it's oh, yeah. good
1: stories, you know. Oh, they're, they're still great stories. So, what we know about them is they both sailed as part of John Rackham, often known as Calico Jack's crew. And in 1719, Rackham takes a pardon, and he meets Bonnie in Nassau, and they become lovers. She becomes his mistress, and they go to sea. Now, Rackham is not a very successful pirate. He's he's very, very small time. If it wasn't for the women on his crew, we probably would barely remember Rackham. Because they were the quite one. tiny, weren't they? Like 11 people or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's very small. He's never very successful. And he's captured in 1720. And Rackham and his crew members are sentenced to hang. And Rackham and the male crew members are executed. And Rackham's body is um, displayed in a gibbet in the harbour too as a warning to other seafaring men. The reason that he becomes famous is because he has these two women in his crew. So what we know about them um, is the story of how they both ended up on the pirate crew. Um, There are certain similarities here. So we know that um, Reed, Mary Reed has allegedly um, she was um, dressed up as a boy and disguised when she was a child by her mother to try and con her father's family out of giving to provide money for her and then she marries and she reportedly goes to Flanders to fight with her husband in disguise and they come back to England they run a pub not very successfully and he dies And at this point, Mary Read reputedly puts on male clothing and decides to sail to the West Indies looking for adventure or at least a cheaper way to get there. And on the way over, while she's in disguise, her ship is stopped by the pirates and she joins a pirate crew. And then a while later, she strikes up with Rackham and his crew. Yeah,
0: yeah, go on.
1: And then we have somebody like Anne Bonnie. So we know a bit more about Bonnie, though, how true some of this is again. So we know, know she's born in Cork uh, in Ireland and she's illegitimate and reputedly her father takes her to South Carolina and there she marries a poor sailor called Bonnie, William Bonnie, And basically her family disowner, because she's married this penniless sailor, and she and her new husband go to the West Indies looking for work. And it's there that Bonnie meets and falls for Jack Rackham, So the dashing pirate, and she abandons her husband. She then reputedly has a baby by uh, Jack Rackham in Cuba and then disguises herself and goes to sea as one of his crew members. And there we have this kind of I think, farcical story, but a great story about how the two women meet each other. So essentially the story is that um, Bonnie sees Reed dressed as a man and finds her quite attractive and says, you know, reveals herself. And then of course, Reed turns around and says, well, actually, no, I'm a woman too. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, so this, I mean, it it does seem somewhat because Rackham
0: gets quite jealous, doesn't he? Because nobody's supposed to know. And then nobody takes them aside and was like, Don't worry about it, Mom's the word. Yeah. She's uh she's she's like me. <laughs> yeah.
1: So this is the story. So it you know, it seems just somewhat far fetched to me that all of a sudden there's these two women incidentally in disguise. No facial hair,
0: a little bit weird, no facial hair. It is common
1: it's not as common, but it's not hard for women to necessarily disguise themselves on ships in this period. But the sheer coincidence—I mean, we know they were both on the ship, so that's not fabrication. I just think the bit that they were both completely in disguise and that nobody knew just stretches—you know—seems a bit far-fetched to me.
0: But yeah. I mean, and you've got yeah. reports, right, where they're saying like people who've been captioned were like that; those are chicks.
1: Yeah, they, people at the oh, time were saying, no, I, I was robbed by this woman, Bonnie o. Reed." so it's not really. And then, of course, when they come to trial, now they're tried separately from the male members of the crew. And Obviously, they were active pirates. They were found guilty. So if they'd been there in some innocent capacity, they wouldn't have been found guilty. There's, there's great evidence against them. It's, it's strong. It's not ambiguous. So they were guilty. And both women, when they're found guilty, of course, they're going to be executed as pirates. And they plead their belly, which is the term at the time for saying they were pregnant, so they couldn't Mm. be executed.
0: But it turns out, uh, wasn't Anne Bonny actually pregnant? They were both actually pregnant. They were both
1: pregnant, yes. So um, we know they were both pregnant, and so therefore they were reprieved from execution. Mm. But Rackham and his male crew members weren't. And this is one of my, whether it's true or not, I don't care. This is one of my favorite um, pirate story. So the day he's executed, Rackham wants to see Bonnie. So he's brought in to see her and she scorns him. And apparently, famously, she tells him that, you know, she was sorry to see him there, but if he fought like a man, he need not have been hanged like a dog. Because
0: Boom. the <laughs>
1: two women were bravely <laughs> up fighting, trying to defend the ship while the male crew members, including Rackham, were carrying down below.
0: Didn't she shoot them? Didn't Bonnie actually shoot and kill a couple of them? Like, yeah, why the are you guys down there?
1: Yeah, they're fighting and that. So they're very active. But of course, neither woman is executed. Um, we know they were both pregnant, but Reed dies in prison. So presumably a jail fever giving birth. And Bonnie um, survives and not long afterwards, according to the stories anyway, is pardoned and released. And goes back to her family in South Carolina, where she apparently lives to be um, a ripe old age and dies in the 1780s. But again, it's some of that's kind of hard to check exactly, but so...
0: That is amazing because I, the, from the bits that I had read, it it said she just disappeared from the records, and I was like, well,
1: I need to know. No, no, that's that's one story. That the problem with a lot of the surviving stories is it's difficult to tell, especially from Charles Johnson. So he has the story that Henry Avery um, comes back to England and lives in Biddeford and is cheated out of all his jewels and wealth and dies in poverty. But you know, there's no particularly solid evidence for a lot of this. Though I think some of the Bonnie stories have been run down by historians and do seem to have some credibility in them.
0: Okay. And then there's this Grace O'Malley character.
1: <clears throat> yeah, You're so Irish. Who's she? Uh, I'm Irish, yeah, so, oh, <laughs> well, yes. Grace O'Malley is somebody I, you would learn about as an Irish schoolchild. And there are you know, songs about her. There's the Grand New Wales Suite. There's music that students study at school. So um, she's um, the daughter of an Irish chieftain. She's born in a very, very turbulent period, 16th century Ireland. So she's born sometime around the 1530s in Mayo, so on the West Coast. And the West Coast of Ireland is noted for obviously a lot of fishing, a lot of merchant trade so, and a lot of piracy. And most of the stories about Grace O'Malley are in the slightly legendary rounds of things. So that she wanted to go to sea when she was a child and her father wouldn't let her. He said she'd get in the way. So she repeatedly shaves off, cuts her hair really short so that it won't get in the way, and this gives her the kind of nickname Grace the Bald. But well, she's the thing at this period is, is that Ireland's very turbulent. There's the English colonisation under the Tudors, under Henry VIII, and then in particular under his daughter Elizabeth I going on. And there's a lot of local power grabs, lords fighting each other, chieftains. And basically, Grace O'Malley's caught up in all of this. And in particular, it's with her second husband. So, after her first husband is killed in a local feud, uh, and she's very active fighting with her first husband but it's with her second husband that she really takes to the sea so she becomes a feared sea captain along with Richard Burke and she's noted for her pirate actions and so they're using galleys along the West Coast to harass merchant ships, English shipping, anybody they can get and she's hated by the local governors because of course they want to arrest her, they want to stop her actions And again, she's not necessarily popular with all the other local warlords because a lot of these guys, some are supporting the English government, some are fighting against each other. So it's um, often quite confusing in that. And of course, then she's got a base on Clare Island. She's married. You know, she's got a strong fleet. And, you know, the local governors all say that she's as active as her husband. She's not just sitting in the back of the ship kind of looking on, that she's an active commander. The government forces capture at one point, and she promises to mend her ways, and she's released. And then in the 1590s, her son is captured by Bingham, the governor in Connacht, and he won't release him. So it's at this point then in 1593 that Grace O'Malley goes to London to make a deal with Queen Elizabeth and to secure her son's release and to try and get back some of her wealth and money. And in the... Um, Uh, Late summer, early autumn of 1593, the two women meet in Greenwich. So they have this meeting. So this it's really amazing. Then there are various legends about this meeting, most of which are not terribly true. Stories about Grace O'Malley you know, throwing a handkerchief in the fire after blowing her nose in it because, of course, you wouldn't reuse a handkerchief. That's filthy. Of course, yeah. it's to be silk or something. So you get these type of legends. And uh, she's, she promises her loyalty to the Queen and she's allowed to go home and her son is released. Now, she doesn't get everything she wants. She doesn't get her lands back. But actually, in the later um, rebellions, so this is the period of the kind of that was called the Nine Years' War in Ireland, uh, the O'Neill rebellion in Ulster, and actually O'Malley maintains the loyalty and keeps her sons loyal to the crown. Now, this costs them dearly when the Ulster rebels move south, and then of course their lands are ravaged. But she does actually stick to her deal with the queen more or less. Well, she dies around sixteen oh three. So you know, she she doesn't necessarily die terribly wealthy. There's you know lots of falling out with her sons over her estate and her entitlements as a widow. But you know, she's somebody who's going to see she's very active as. Yeah. I'm not sure we can quite call her a pirate in the in the kind of purest piratical sense, because you know she's often raiding people she's at war w- with. So it, a lot of this is wartime. It, it's it's this idea of piracy in the eye of the beholder.
0: So more like a fighter, maybe. a fighter, yeah.
1: Yeah, she's not quite a privateer because obviously she's her own chieftain. She's making war, but it, it, it's slightly complex. But again, this idea of this woman going to sea and being an active commander, not passive, not just sitting back, making decisions. So that's, I think, why she fascinates people. And then she's often kind of repurposed in later Irish history as a great nationalist hero.
0: Yeah, because I mean, wasn't there, weren't, I, I remember reading that there were some generals that didn't take her seriously. I mean, she was quite mm-hmm. short for one, I think. And they sort of just dismissed her as, oh, she's just, ugh, just ignore her. It's just grace, whatever. Yeah. And then actuality, she kind of morphs into this, like you said, this this national figure. So she goes from being kind of scoffed at and just dismissed. And then now she's, it, it changes over time, I guess is what I'm
1: trying to say. It, it changes over time, the perception of her. And in some respects, you know, she is a very small scale regional warlord in 16th century Irish warfare, and there's no shortage of them I could sit in, list 20 or 30 of them off for you, but I think it's the fact that she was a woman and doing things by sea, which has helped kind of give her a place in kind of national mythology, and you have said, music written about her, she features in songs, nowadays when you have kind of pirate documentaries she'll often be one of the kind of tick box people you want to put in there but, you know, but she is really interesting and she's doing some interesting stuff at sea, so it, 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 she's a good, fun character
0: Oh, absolutely. But as you and I both know, uh, very few women went into piracy to become pirates, aside from the fact that it was insanely dangerous and you'd Mm -hmm. have to be crazy, let's be honest, to to pursue a career in that, especially as a woman. Um, But women were involved quite a bit in the pirating industry, especially widows. And I would like to know from your end, What role did women play historically in the pirating industry and how did this affect their agency and victimhood when in contact with the pirating community?
1: Well, I think this is, and this is probably the, the area that I'm most interested in at the moment because women are integral to the pirate business. So they're on shore, they're selling supplies to pirates, they're buying the stolen loot that pirates steal. Because we think of pirates capturing booty and treasure, but more often than not, it's trade goods. It's stuff that you have to sell on.
0: Yeah, you don't um, bury it under a rock or something. No,
1: they're pirates. You know you're going to be dead soon. You're going to want to spend your loot and on a good time. So pirates are putting into a port, they're going to want to go to taverns, they are going to want to pay for sex, prostitutes. So you have huge amounts of women involved in the kind of aiding and abetting, receivers of stolen goods, selling supplies to pirates, drinking, taverns, prostitutes, as I've said, and just landladies renting rooms, people you buy supplies of. So there's it's traditionally a huge amount of women involved, especially in the colonies in North America and that just involved in pirate good And lots of women um, just... You know, like a dashing pirate. So, Governor Fletcher, and you know, I think it's in New York, and you know, his daughters and that are en- entertained pirates and that's so you know, p- pirates are often quite wealthy. I mean, you know, they, these are men with money in their pocket who want to spend it. So, a good time. Um, generally speaking, women are not wanted on pirate ships. So, some pirates actually, like Bartholomew Roberts, have rules that say they don't want women on their pirate ship. Are they, are they considered bad luck? The traditional idea of women on a ship being bad luck, but I think it's more also that they know there's not going to be many and in a very all-male society, they don't necessarily want the men, the male pirates, fighting over, well, whose woman is that? This is partly why I think the idea of Bonnie and Reed being in disguise. So they feel that it would break down the crew morale. Um, You also have the problem, of course, is that pirates capture women. And what happens there... Now, some pirates like John Phillips have one of his articles that the crew must not mess with any prudent woman without her consent and they'll be killed if so. So, you know, they're not allowed touch any women that they capture but other captains and Henry Morgan and his men are notorious for the brutality towards Spanish women they capture. When they attack Portobello they use uh, some Spanish nuns as human shields and after they take the town they go on an orgy of rape and violence attacking every woman they can find and even some of the commentators at the time kind of condemn this but you know so it's a mixed bag with pirates. Some are very brutal, some are not towards women. It's you it's hit and miss. There's no guarantee. Wow.
0: So, either way you look at it, if you were attacked, you should just assume the worst because.
1: Yeah, usually the worst, yeah. But there's also um, women whose husbands are captured by pirates. So in the Devon and Cornwall region, there was a huge problem with North African pirates, sometimes called the Barbary pirates, coming up and raiding ships. And in particular, they were looking for not so much treasure and loot as actually men to take back as captives as slaves. So you have a huge number of women in the uh, southern coast of England and Ireland who lose their husbands to as pirate captives. And so these women are really interested because obviously they're victims in a different way because they've been left potentially without their husbands, with their children at home, impoverished. And what's really interesting is how these women act. And as you mentioned, the agency. So these women are some of the most active women in the 17th century in terms of petitioning the government to get action to go and send Expeditions down to North Africa to deal with the pirates or to ransom and pay their husbands back. Um, a woman, I've done some work on, Eleanor Walsh, so um, her husband is captured by Barbary pirates, so she's left in court with a very young family and she sells all her goods to try and raise the ransom and then she petitions the government to for permission to go to Amsterdam because her brothers live there so that she can go and raise more funds. So, you know, Eleanor Walsh is not just sitting at home taking it, she's trying to do something to get her husband back so you know some of these women do have a lot of agency in this themselves so it's it, i think it's important that we don't just see them as victims so of course the women who are obviously captured by pirates can of course be treated horribly
0: sure sure i mean there was a crazy story i read about and i, I wish I'd, i could remember everybody's name but there was basically it was about a, a pirate who in my mind was a weenie compared to his wife <laughs> <laughs> and the way the story went um and if you've heard of this please correct me, is that he was trying to hide from local officials, especially this one governor in Bristol. And so he hides away in his house and he hides in the attic. And this guy from official from Bristol comes and knocks on the door and he says, I want to, I want, I want your husband. And the wife doesn't even open the door. She leans out the window and she says, he's not home. And he's like, I don't believe you. And so she goes to the door and she's holding like a pot of some hot water and looks at all of his men. And he says, you guys can come in. You're staying outside so the men come in they look around they can't find him. long story short they realize that he's in the attic and two guys try to come in to get into the attic and she traps them with her sister in law one of which has a sword (laughs) the other i think has a rifle they trap the two of them start trying to hack at these two men the men run for their lives Meanwhile, the husband's still hiding in a hidey hole up in the attic and uh, they say they're going to come back and um, the officer in Bristol has uh, two soldiers standing outside the house to make sure that this guy doesn't escape. All the women are in on this, by the way. They all have a plan. (laughs) So um, the mother of the pirate sneaks into the house and tells her daughter-in-law and her daughter, here's what we're going to do to these officers. And they basically boil a bunch of hot water and tar and pour it on top of these guys. So they just melt and then they flee. Meanwhile, the pirate ends up escaping once these officers have been boiled. And when the uh, Bristol officer comes back, the guy has gone. And I'm like, these
1: women had cojones. (laughs) They weren't afraid of anything, you know. That's, I think, and that's the thing we see about, you know, women in the early modern they're willing to defend their houses. It's not just pirate women, but it's, yeah, any sort of connection like this. Uh, there's a pirate, George Cusack, in the late 1600s, and he escapes from prison in London, and, you know, he goes to hide at his sister's house. So, you know, the, the female relatives are very involved in their, you know, the, dealing with their pirate relatives, and just they're sharing the loot, the ill-gotten gains.
0: Well, and the fact that they would—they would have the—the the, the strength to be like, "You're not coming in here. You can come in. I decide who comes into my house. I don't care how rich you are. You're staying outside." And yeah. then the guy just does it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, well, I wouldn't fight her. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? You win. You can have your husband. I didn't want him that bad in the first place. <laughs> um, but yeah, so kind of getting into this idea we've been talking about—you know, what, what pirates are really like versus mm-hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean. But uh, you did say that there are some truths behind the pirate myths. So could you tell us what some of those are and how um, maybe some female pirates may be depicted in fiction?
1: Yeah, I think what I'd say about a lot of pirate cliches that we see in fiction and popular culture, a lot of stuff comes from Treasure Island and then Raphael Sabatini's books like Captain Blood and this. But actually, there's often a grain of truth in some of them. So, as I said, buried treasure is not really a thing. Pirates spend their money. They want to go and have a good time. Also, remember, they're all thieves. Would you trust them? Your follow makes no sense. No. Also, you know, half the time they're not necessarily even getting treasure. They might be stealing goods. So you you know, you're not gonna Bury all the wine or the rum you You're going to want to drink it, sell yeah, it, make money. Um, things like walking the plank, not really. I mean, why would you do something as elaborate as when that? You could just shove them off the boat. Yeah, but <laughs> things like rum, we always associate pirates as hard drinking and drinking rum. Um, yes, that's very much true because rum is very much the Caribbean drink. Drink the sugar plantations, and this is one of the ideas of being a pirate: is that you have an equal share of food and drink. You can drink as much as you want. Though that does sometimes get ships into trouble when everybody on board is absolutely hammered mm-hmm. and I said too much to drink. Um, so people associate like the treasure piece of it, which actually just was a legitimate type of currency at the time. And um, I think I've already said the pirate articles and code, that's very much something that was real and i think one of my favorites is um the idea of marooning so you see that in um pirates of the caribbean where a pirate who breaks the code is marooned on a desert island and they're usually given a bottle of water and a pistol with one shot in it and that's that's true that's what pirates do if you break the code you will be set ashore so you know again this torturous punishment that once your water's gone you have to blow your brains out
0: because there was um, another one you'd written in an article at the University of Plymouth talking about uh, the idea of the pirate with the peg leg <clears throat> and that if you had a peg leg, chances are you were just a cook because you didn't have two functioning legs. So there's a bit of a sort of ableist sort of a b- approach to these you, Yes, you could have one, but that doesn't mean we're going to put you in the front lines.
1: Yeah, and uh, obviously we have some of this um, from Treasure Island, Long John Silver, but um, it, basically this comes down to the Royal Navy who uh, basically ask that ships take the cook, a disabled sailor from Greenwich Hospital, often with a wooden leg, to serve on board a ship. So the cook's not employed for any great skill preparing food in this period. So it's traditionally a disabled sailor. So again, you know, there's a lot of um, the pirate articles from somebody like Henry Morgan specify how much a sailor Mm. will get if they're injured and how much to, to lose a leg and things like that. So, you know, you will have a lot of disabled sailors in this period. But, you know, for a pirate ship, you're going to be active. You need as many active men. Whereas a naval ship, which might have seven or 800 men on board, can afford a disabled cook. So it's much more common to see in naval ships rather than on pirate ships necessarily. You're going to pay your disabled sailors off.
0: Mm, okay, that is good to know. For those of you thinking of dressing up for Halloween. Got to but it's still fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course it is. Yeah.
0: Got to have a pirate in a peg leg.
1: Oh, yeah. But it, it's, it's like, I mean, you said about popular culture. Like, we think about popular culture and the late 19th, early 20th century. But what I love is that piracy was popular entertainment in the sixteen and 1700s. Mm. So, you have lots of plays about pirates, and one of the most interesting features is a female pirate. So, it's a play set in Tudor Times, but published in early Jacobean period, and it's called Fair Maid of the West and it tells the story of Bess Bridges, a tavern wench from Plymouth, where the streets glister with gold, and basically she goes off and leads a pirate voyage, so Bess obviously kind of implying, of course, Elizabeth I here, and so this was a play written by Thomas Haywood at the time, and so we have lots of other pirate plays that are quite popular, and then you go into the 18th century, and you have pirate plays like Capital Singleton by Daniel Defoe, and then Charles Johnson's General History of the Pirates. It's first published in 1724, and I'm sure you've probably seen in your own reading how many different editions there are, but how many drawings, how much it's added to and expanded.
0: Yeah, it is amazing. I just—it's a wealth of literature that I—I I never even thought that it could be, it could be what it is. You know, you just think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll look at a few things, and then suddenly you're led down a rabbit hole. But it's a glorious rabbit hole of just so many fascinating twists and turns. Yeah. Which leads me to my final question. If you could meet one pirate in history, who would it be and
1: why? Yeah, I had to think about this. and um, I'm not sure I want to meet a pirate per se. <laughs> Unless but, they're behind bars. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd like to be at the trial of possibly somebody like the pirate George Cusack or somebody like the trial of Rackham and Bonnie and Reed to be there, to actually see them, to hear their stories, to hear the accusations possibly the pirate execution, so you, somebody like William Kidd where the rope breaks and then he has to be hung back up. But oh, I think for God. me, I think um, George Cusack's trial would be interesting because we have copies of the trial that survive and he's quite witty in his defence. He's the guy who's escaped from jail. He tries some very kind of um, bizarre defence tactics, but he's also noted for his brutality as a pirate, so he famously rips up a Bible and throws it overboard. So I think I'd maybe not so much want to meet one of them but kind of be an audience member in the trial to kind of sit back and listen and
0: hide in the shadows safely
1: yes (laughs) they're not nice people I don't want to meet Edward Teach or Bartholomew Roberts these are these are nasty men
0: yeah they do I, I mean I think that's the thing when you you know one of the things that I think it come up in some of your writings is you know this idea that you know piracy is really popular and yet when you look at it it's awful. Like, how is something like, especially in the slave trade, it's like, why are we putting this on a pedestal? But yet, we somehow pick and choose the bits that we think are the most exciting, throw in a famous actor, and bada bing, bada boom, you got yourself a great Hollywood film, yeah. and then everybody's into it. And I just think that that's, that's interesting, that's something that should be totally condemned, and yet we we just
1: eat it up, literally. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's like how has something so bad become almost children's entertainment? And but then she said, like the, the movies. I mean, more modern TV shows like Black Sails portray piracy more brutally. But most movies, Pirates of the Caribbean, are still in that kind of older swashbuckling comedic vein. And so if yeah. you go back to the thirties and the forties, the Errol Flynn movies, or through into the nineteen fifties with things like Anne of the Indies, which is one of the few films to really depict a female pirate, a very fictionalized version of Anne Bonny, or my personal favourite, The Crimson Pirate with Burt Lancaster. You know, the, the pirates are invariably, even if they start off as bad men, they act heroically and properly and, you know, they save the day. Kind of like and, a
0: Western film, but on
1: scene, yeah. or on the sea, yeah. On the sea, yeah. And so they, have, they always have these redeeming qualities. They're rarely ever completely bad. You know, so I'm, I'm not sure how much demand there is to make a kind of a true pirate film.
0: Yeah, I'd be like, you know what, I'm going to watch something else on Netflix. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: We're good. <laughs> but that's what i love and that's probably you know my earliest introduction to piracy was through a lot of these classic movies and then it's interesting to see how female pirates have changed so kind of classic movies the pirate the females often the damsel in distress who you know is often initially quite put off the pirate because he seems like a bad man but then he shows his true colors and he's a really a good man a hero and then you move through into modern depictions like uh, cutthroat island where we have female pirate gina davis or of course Elizabeth Swan in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise
0: yeah yeah that is true well I have to say this was fun I like really enjoyed this we could talk about this for ages but unfortunately uh, that's it for now from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host Dr. Anne Wand I'd like to thank Elaine again for joining us at the studio this afternoon Additional information on today's topic, along with a list of excellent books and articles that I highly, highly suggest you explore will be available on our website in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, then please remember to like, subscribe, and consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going. By becoming a patron, you get access to extra bonus content, patron-only interviews, panels, workshops, and much more. To join, just head over to patreon.com slash podcast. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.